0: Good to see you. Hi to those of you online and uh, really excited to be continuing in our Daring to Be Different series through the book of Daniel. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to Daniel chapter 3. That's where we're going to get to in just a moment. But before we get to that, quick story for you. So when I was a kid, uh, there were these glorious days where my mother would take my brother and I. To the wonderful oasis in the desert of preteen boredom known as the arcade. It's a wonderful place. And when we would go to the arcade, my mother would give us five whole dollars to spend however we wanted, which to my 11 year old self, it may as well have been 50, right? Five dollars at the arcade, what could be better? And I don't know about you, I don't know if you grew up going to arcades or what kind of games you were into, but for me, I was all about the games where you could win tickets. Any other ticket game people in the house, all right. And so I, you know what I'm talking about. It's these games where if you get a high score or you press the button at the right time or you whack enough moles, the machine starts to make noise and those beautiful red tickets are dispensed. And then at the end of our time spending our $5, we could take all those tickets to the redemption area and we could trade our tickets for some incredible item that we would lose interest in on the drive home. Or if we really were wanting to be smart about it, we could save up our tickets for multiple visits, right? And then we would come back and trade those tickets in for something that we'd lose interest in by the end of the week. Either way, make no mistake about it, the point of playing the games was to earn the tickets. That's it. I was not a skee-ball enthusiast, right? I did not get any great satisfaction from pressing the button right now. It was all about the tickets. That's all I cared about was the tickets. I had no appreciation for the game If the basketball shooting game stopped giving out tickets, I was out. And if you know me, I love basketball. Doesn't matter, I want the tickets, right? And here's the irony, looking back on those days, not to get too self-reflective about being an 11-year-old at the arcade, I probably, my obsession with tickets probably robbed me of quite a bit of fun, right? Like, there are probably all sorts of great games I missed because I'm like, no tickets, forget it, right? My obsession with the tickets was everything. It's hard to really enjoy the game when all you care about is the tickets. And I wonder if we are really brutally honest, how many of us are missing out on the richness and beauty that comes from knowing the God of the universe because if, again, we are really brutally honest, we don't want him, we want his tickets right, or, or, or to put it in more Christian language. How many of us miss out on the joy of knowing Jesus because at the end of the day, we could take him or leave him, but we sure want his blessings. How many of us, if we're honest, we don't actually want to follow him or learn from him and we certainly don't want to die to ourselves to follow him. We just want him to help us get what we really want. And if he stops giving out the tickets, however we define them, we lose interest. And it's no overstatement to say that a life spent living from that perspective is a tragedy. It got real quiet in here, by the way, going, he was being funny like a minute ago. This really took a turn, right? Now listen, listen, listen. God loves to bless his children God loves to bless his children, and we praise God for that. And I will pray God's blessings for you all day long. But don't miss this. What makes God worth knowing is not that he passes out blessing. God is worth knowing because he is God. Because he is God. God is not our mascot who helps us get what's really important to us. To quote the great St. Augustine, God made us for himself. God made us for himself. He's not the one who helps us get to the thing. He is the thing. He doesn't help us get to the thing. He is the thing. And listen, there's, I don't mean to be cynical, but there are no shortage of people in this world who aren't that into Jesus but are really into his tickets. I could tell you personal stories of actual humans whose name I know and who I am in personal relationship with who have faked interest in Jesus because it helped them reach other goals they had for their lives, and it's a tragedy. And I wanna tell you why. It's a tragedy to go through your entire life with such a small view of God. God is majestic and mighty and glorious and perfect and wonderful and holy. He is the maker of everything that is. He is the author of our days. He has made us to find ultimate delight in knowing him. And listen, listen, I know I'm laying it on pretty thick here, but there is no guilt or obligation to anything that I am saying right now, none whatsoever. It is only invitation. It is only invitation, invitation away from a life where we don't want God, we just want his tickets, and into a life where we know him for who he is. In fact, something we're doing throughout this series is we've been praying together and trying to pray for all the same things. And if you're, you're here in the room and you got a bulletin, there's a, a number you can text and it's on your bulletin and, and we'll send you prayer prompts on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And if you're online, maybe a host could drop it in the chat. And we're having these prayer prompts go out via text on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and then giving you another one on the, on the weekend. So the prayer prompt for the weekend, I just want to encourage you, if you have a few minutes, just to sit in, in this idea and just, just pray through it a little bit. Is just, just pray to God. Say, God, would you help me know you as you really are? Or, or, or to put it differently, would you help me know you more deeply? Because I believe when we know God as he truly is, we realize how silly it is to only chase his tickets instead of chasing him. So God, would you help us to know us as you truly are? Again, there is no guilt. It is only invitation. It's invitation to be men and women who are captured by the love of God and who walk in step with him. Because when we do that, it changes us. We, we become, and we, we could do a whole series on who we Become. I mean, this is the year of becoming. We're talking about it all year. But when we are really captured by God's love and, and we're walking in step with him, we, we become people who believe in the supernatural, right? And we heard an incredible teaching about that from Pastor Lance last weekend. If you missed it, grab the, the podcast. We, we become people who can walk through suffering and pain with grief, but also with the hope of heaven, We become people who are honest even if it hurts and kind even when it's difficult and how badly our culture needs that right now as we live in a world where it seems that any cruelty is justifiable as long as it is in the name of a righteous cause. Just so we're clear, cruelty in the name of a righteous cause is called cruelty and it's wicked. It is flat out wicked. We can become people who are honest even when it hurts and are kind even when it's difficult and what we ultimately come to see is, come on, we live in a world where people are losing their minds, trying to get as many tickets as they can. Is that not true? But God invites us into a better way. God invites us into a better way. Life under God's loving care, where we are loved by him, where we are formed by him, where we are shaped by him to make a difference. I'm gonna, I've said it twice already, I'm gonna say it again. There is no guilt or obligation here, it is only invitation. An invitation into life as God, God who is more invested in your joy than you are, life as God intended it. So when we respond to that invitation, we discover the fill in the blank, if you're following along on the app or on your handout, if you're here in the room, or if you're taking notes. So here's what it is, that God's core values are different from the world's. God's core values are different from the world's. His core values are different, and they're good. They're different and they're good. And we're going to look at a story today of three men who, who understood that from Daniel chapter 3. Now, what's interesting is Daniel is actually absent from this story. He was likely doing work in some other part of the Babylonian empire when this took place. But this story involves, like I said, three men and A couple of months ago, I had a a church reach out and just kind of say, hey, would you mind recording a couple of quick videos for us, answering a few questions? We want to play it in our services. I said, sure, happy to do it. And one of the questions was, who is your favorite character in the Old Testament? And I said, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to give you three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Daniel chapter three. So that's who we're talking about today. Just to set up the story, last week, We learned about a king named Nebuchadnezzar, which if you missed last week, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is essentially uh, an insecure alpha male who throws temper tantrums and uses his power to harm people. I mean, what's not to love, right? And in Daniel chapter 2, he has a dream, and he's desperate to find someone who can tell him what it means. So Daniel steps forward, and he offers an interpretation that God gives him. Daniel, who is living in captivity under a pagan king, seeks to use the gifts that God has given him, the skills that God has given him, to bring blessing. And as a result, King Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, acknowledges the power of God, and then he promotes Daniel to a position of great authority, and from that position of authority, he's able to request a promotion for his buddies as well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's pretty amazing. And I just, before we get into Daniel chapter 3, I just... Humor me for a minute. I want to point out just a, a really simple application point here, that, that once again, Daniel is a Jewish man stuck living in exile under a pagan, polytheistic king. It would be hard to imagine a culture that conflicted with Daniel's core values more than the culture that he was living in. And what does Daniel do living in this environment? He honors God. He listens to God and he seeks the good of those around him. He honors God, he listens to God, and he seeks the good of those around him. It reminds me of a famous passage in Jeremiah 29 where it's kind of a similar situation where God's people are in exile in Babylon. And again, they're living out of their land in a pagan culture that doesn't support their way of life, doesn't support their religion, just completely opposite to their values. And what does God say? He says, make sure you protest all the time. No, he says, seek the good of the city where I have sent you into exile right? Seek the good of the city. Do you understand? Here's the point. The people of God, that's us, by the way, are meant to be a blessing to their society. And listen, there may be times where we individually or collectively need to speak out against something that's going on with our government. I mean, in a sense, that happens in Daniel chapter 3. I mean, I've written letters myself on, on occasion. But our first posture should be to bring blessing. Our first posture should be to bring blessing. Too often, those in authority over us know Christians to be those who complain first. What if we were known for doing everything we can to bring blessing? What if for every complaint our elected officials heard from a Christian, they had a 100 Christians reach out saying, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Maybe I voted for you, maybe not, it doesn't matter, I'm praying for you, I just want you to know that, right? What if instead of complaining and urging others to do the same, We prayed and urged others to do the same. I'm crazy enough to think that maybe that might make a difference. The people of God are meant to bring blessing. We're meant to bring blessing. So that sets up our story, Daniel chapter three. And our friend Nebuchadnezzar has a new trick up his sleeve, verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was six cubits. He set it up on a plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, if you'll remember from Daniel chapter 2, the king has this dream. And in the dream, part of what happens is there's a statue with a head of gold. And it's reasonable to suggest that that served as an inspiration for this idea that the king has. Now, I don't know about you, I don't tend to notice, I don't tend to measure things in cubits in my everyday life, but a cubit is 18 inches, so this thing is massive. It is 90 feet tall by nine feet wide. And there was some precedence in the ancient world for structures of that size, but it's real, real big. And the statue itself raises all sorts of questions. What did it look like? We don't know. Some scholars say it could have looked like the king, maybe, maybe not. And what was its purpose? Was it a vanity project by an egotistical king? Perhaps. Was it meant to honor one of the pagan gods in Babylonian culture? Probably not. Was it some sort of way for Nebuchadnezzar to unify his people in allegiance to him? Most likely. That's what most scholars think this was. That this was a way for Nebuchadnezzar to consolidate power, to require these declarations of allegiance, that this statue was essentially a symbol of his power and authority, right? This is what this was. So keep that in the back of your head. Verse 2, then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all of the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Did you notice those two kind of obnoxiously long lists back to back? (laughs) See, that's done intentionally here by Daniel, the author of this book. And he's meaning to make a comedic point here. You're gonna find as we read this chapter, there's a lot of repetition of lists. And what's that doing? It's meant to symbolize what we're gonna see in a few verses, that everybody in this society was just sort of mindlessly bowing down to this, this statue. That these lists and the repetition of these lists is meant to be this sort of mindless repetition that again symbolized what was going on in the culture and to which Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ago could not have have stood out more. Verse 4, and the herald proclaimed, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tragon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So everyone's told, when the music plays, you are going to bow down and worship God this statue. Now, for many living in that culture, and Babylonia, Babylon, Babylonia, Babylon was very multicultural at that point. There was Persians, there were Assyrians, there were all sorts of different cultures. But what did those cultures all have in common? They were polytheistic. So we've got lots of gods, sure, add another god. What's the, what's the big deal, right? Fine. But for Jews, this is a real problem. For Jews, I mean, the very first of the Ten Commandments is what? You shall have no other gods before me. And the second is you will not make a carved image and bow down to it. So to obey this command from the king would be, to, would be a direct violation of those two commandments. And to make matters worse, disobeying this decree was to come with a steep price. Verse 6. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Likely the very same furnace used to smelt the gold used to build the statue. Verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard them strike up the band, another list. How about that? All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar. Has set up. I mean, just just in your mind's eye, try to try to picture this scene, this mass of humanity gathered around this just massive statue. And when the music starts, they bow down, they get on their knees, on their faces, not before the God of heaven, but before a created thing. It is a spiritually dark scene. I, I, I don't know about you, I've had times in my life where I can just feel the spiritual darkness around me. I don't know how to describe it other than I can just feel it in my body. Something is not right here. In the spiritual gifts world we call that discernment, that I can just discern something is not right here. I was in an environment like that several weeks ago. Like this is just a spiritually dark place. And that's what I picture as I imagine this sort of scene. People from all of these cultural backgrounds Bowing down in worship to a created thing. Now understand this. In our world today, I don't know about you. I, I'm not saying they're not out there. I have not heard a lot of stories of mass gatherings of people bowing down to 90-foot statues. Like, that doesn't seem to be a live issue in our world today. But make no mistake about it. We are bowing down to creative, created things all the time, the look of them has changed, the reality of what they are has not. And so many in our society, and I say this as non-judgmentally and compassionately as possible, I say this as somebody who can fall victim to it just like anyone else, so many in our society are worshiping falsely at the altar of all sorts of created things. And daring to be different, we're talking about daring to be different in this series, daring to be different means our worship is not for sale. Our worship is not for sale. We don't worship things because they are popular. We do not worship things because there is some material benefit. We don't worship ideas. We don't worship success. We don't worship health or money or power or ideologies or material things or anything else. And why do we who call ourselves the people of God, why do we as followers of Jesus Christ worship God and God alone? First of all, because he is the only one worthy of our worship. And second, do not miss this. If we worship anything else, it will eventually destroy us. If we worship anything else, it will eventually destroy us. The worship of that which is not God is called idolatry. And I'll just, if you're taking notes, this is one to write down. Go look at this passage later. Isaiah chapter 44, starting in verse 9. It's just this, just Isaiah goes off on the futility of idolatry. And he says in verse 9, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Understand, if we give our ultimate allegiance to anyone or anything else, we will be let down again and again and again. And Isaiah 44 is just amazing, but the point is, If we worship anything else, it will crush us. So just to give, I mean, we could sit here all night with examples just to give you a few. If we worship beauty, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to look your best, but if we worship beauty, there will be moments of excitement that highlight a life of crushing insecurity. Do you understand that? If we worship money, there will simply never be enough. If we worship power, we will become cruel and harsh. If we worship attention, we condemn ourselves to a life of constant craving. If we worship materialism, we'll get that little jolt of excitement when the Amazon truck pulls up. I mean, come on. You all know what I'm talking about. It's a safe place, everybody but it doesn't last long, does it? And pretty quick, we need another hit. And if he doesn't come by for a couple days, we wonder what happened. <laughs> if we worship materialism, it leads us nowhere good, or, or here's one, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. If we worship academic success, and listen, I'm all for getting good grades. I, with humility, I played the school game and played it pretty well, frankly. So I'm all for getting good grades. But if you'll just look at the explosion of anxiety we're seeing among academically gifted teenagers, like, we have messed this up. We're worshiping at the altar of academic success and the consequences are devastating. And on and on I could go. Once again, we do not see people physically bowing down before 90 foot statues, but how many in our culture, maybe if we're honest, it's some of us, how many of us are laying everything at the altar of success or attention or political power or material wealth and there is a falseness to that that is devastating and there's never gonna be enough. There's never gonna be enough. There is only one who is worthy of your worship. Worship of anyone or anything else will ultimately crush us. And the spiritual darkness of a mass of people bowing down before a statue, it's seen in our own culture in a 100 different ways. And let me be very clear, put me at the front of the line of people who can be susceptible to false worship, right? I'm standing here as one who struggles as much as anybody. Verse eight, therefore at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. The Chaldeans and Daniel kind of got into it in Daniel chapter two, so they were very happy to exact some revenge here. Verse nine, they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, "O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears them strike up the band shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego." So these Chaldeans are trying to show the king, hey, these aren't just three random people who are disobeying your orders. These are three men. Come on, king, you have treated these guys very well. You have appointed them into these positions of power. And king, how do they repay you by disobeying your simple order? And what we need to understand is that to not worship the king's god was to denigrate his royal standing. Remember, this is a symbol of his power and authority. So to not worship the king's God, yes, it was a religious act, to be sure, but it was an act of calling into question the king's power, which, as you can imagine, remember, insecure alpha male with a penchant for temper tantrums, he did not respond great to this situation, right? Verse 13. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, (laughs) it's kind of funny. Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, is in a little bit of a tough spot here because Uh, He had given this order, most likely very hastily, trying to make sure that nobody would cross him. He sort of threw out the penalty of, uh, and if you don't do this, you're gonna go into the fiery furnace, thinking surely that would keep everyone in line. Like for those of you, if you're a parent, if you've ever had a situation where you just threaten your child with some totally ridiculous consequence that you have no interest in enforcing to try to gain their compliance, (laughs) and then they don't comply, and you're like, well, shoot, now what am I gonna do? (laughs) (laughs) It was kind of like that, only times a thousand. So he gives them one more chance. And what's interesting to note here is that had he even taken a moment to reflect, he would have remembered what happened in just the previous chapter. The God of the Jews had given him a dream, and then he had revealed its interpretation to Daniel. If Nebuchadnezzar had, again, just taken a moment, he would have remembered, oh, yeah, these guys, their God is really, really powerful. But as one commentator I read this week rightly stated, rage does not reflect, instead it threatens. Rage does not reflect, instead it threatens. So then we get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's reply to the king. Some of the most powerful verses in all of scripture in my opinion, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. See, these men had full faith in the power of God. There was no question in their minds that God could do what he wanted, when he wanted. I hope you know God's power like that. I hope you know that you serve a God who is mighty and strong and powerful. But then look at verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There it is. They said, we know what God can do, and we also know that he might not do it. Either way, we belong to him. You want a man, you want to talk about faith, Like that, these men are standing face to face with the person who has the power to unilaterally end their lives. And they say, Listen, we're not bowing down to your statue. The God we worship is more powerful than you. If you put us in the furnace, he can rescue us. When our God begins to move, no earthly king can stand in his way. It was true then, it's true now. They understood that was the case. But they also said, they also said, but even if God doesn't rescue us, even even if we die in the furnace, make no mistake, we're going to worship him anyway. It does not matter the cost. See, they knew that God owed them nothing but was worthy of everything. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I don't think they were in it for the tickets. So here we have the tension we live in as believers. We believe in a God whose power is unmatched. Psalm 135 verse six, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. The sum total of all of the things that God cannot do is what our mathematician friends would call an empty set, right? Whatever God wants to do, he does. Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil, not as just a nice thing to say. He taught us to pray that because he can, because he can. And we believe in a God who heals bodies. I was praying for healing for somebody after last service. We believe in a God who restores marriages. We believe in a God who calls the wayward back to himself. I remember meeting a woman at Bridgeway, and we met, and we're sitting, and we're talking, and the first words out of this woman's mouth were, hi, I'm so-and-so, I have stage four cancer, and there's nothing the doctors can do. I have a little bit under a year to live. Well, nice to meet you. And I remember that same woman showing up at church a few months later with a manila folder under her arm full of clean scans. And proclaiming the power of God that she had been healed. Listen to me. That was seven years ago. I saw her last week here. And every time I see her, she is a physical reminder to me that God has the power to heal. And yet, we do an awful lot of funerals around here, and yet... As I tell that story, there are those of you here, those of you watching online who are going, man, that that sure would have been great had that happened in my situation, right? We do an awful lot of funerals around here, and I know that that many of you, you live with the joy that comes from seeing a radical move of God in your life, and I love seeing that in your life. I love it when you share those things with me and you live with that joy, but then some of you, you're living with the heartache of unanswered prayers, and let's just be honest, a whole bunch of you are living with both, right? A whole bunch of you are living with both. I've read incredible stories, maybe you have too, of God's miraculous healing and rescue. And I've read stories of the true heroes of our faith, men and women who sang God's phrases as they were consumed by fire. I think about the second century church father, Tertullian, who famously declared the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Meaning that when Christians die for their faith, it inspires faith in others. See, you don't say that if people aren't, if everybody who's on the verge of death gets rescued, you don't say that, right? And make no mistake about it, people are still dying in allegiance to Jesus all over the world today. But, but here's what I know. Here's what I know. I, I, as one human being, I want to live with a but-if-not kind of faith. That's the kind of faith I wanna live in. I wanna have the sort of faith where I am confident in the power of God, where I am praying for miracles, where I am praying for healing, where I am walking in the supernatural, all the while knowing that if God chooses not to act in the way that I want him to, he is still just as worthy of my undivided allegiance and affection. That's the kind of faith that I want. See, listen. We're gonna to get to the end of this story in just a minute and, and there's a decent chance you know the story. It's pretty famous, right? Like, the ending is amazing. <laughs> like, it's incredible. <laughs> it is one of the most amazing miracles in all of scripture. And I praise God for that. But I don't love this story because of the ending. These dudes aren't my favorite Bible characters because they got rescued. They're my favorite Bible characters because of Daniel chapter three, verse 18 where these three men said, even if it costs us our very lives, we belong to God, and he's, our, he's ours and we're his, and that's just it. And I just think, man, that there, there's, there is a freedom and a peace that comes with that, that we just miss if we're in it for the tickets. I mean, Jesus, hundreds of years later, He's talking about life, and life, to life abundantly, John 10, 10, it's a famous verse. And, and he's talking about a lot of different things there, and I don't mean to oversimplify it. But, like, I just don't buy that he's talking about material prosperity in that verse. Like, I just don't buy that he's like, life and life abundantly, that means well-behaved children and an easy life. Like, that sounds wonderful, but I don't. I think he's talking about a life anchored in that kind of faith. Where we just say, God, no, no matter, no matter what comes, I, I, I belong to you, and I, and I, and I trust you, right? And I trust you. That that is that is there is an abundance to that kind of life. And listen, <laughs> what these three men are facing is like the ultimate crisis scenario, right? Like standing before the most powerful man in the world, and he is going to kill you. Like, well, this is not great, right? So how did they respond with that kind of faith? How did they respond with that kind of faith? I'll tell you this much. I don't think they're making it up on the fly, right? Getting brought in to see King Nebuchadnezzar. It's like, oh, shoot, he's really mad. What are we going to do, guys? All right, well, just like, don't bow down to the statue. Like, I don't think it went like that, right? We don't know a lot about the details of their lives, but, but I'll tell you this much. These, these men, and, and, and get, this, get this point, there, there is such important application here. These men knew who they were and they knew who God was before the crisis hit. The, these men knew who they were And they knew who God was before the crisis hit. Why why do why do we care? Why do we care about you walking closely with Jesus today? Why do I care about walking closely with Jesus today? Because you don't want to wait for a moment of crisis to decide what you think about God. Like, if you're in a moment of crisis and you're still not sure what you think about God, like, hey, we're here for you and we're going we're to walk you through it and, like, send me an email. Well, we are here to help, right? So there's no judgment. But you don't want to wait for that moment. See, if you go through life with this sort of vague belief that God owes you something and he's going to make your life easy, like, what are you going to do when the crisis hits? What, what do you have to lean on? But if you know deep in your heart and in your soul and in your bones that God is is good and righteous and holy and powerful. See, what does that do? It, It frees you up to pray bold prayers when you find yourself in crisis and then to ultimately release what is in your hands to God's loving Care. I believe God wants that sort of faith for us. That is, subtitle of the message, Radical Faith for Stressful Times. That is what that is. It's faith that is built over time as we study God's word, as we worship together, as we connect with God through prayer, as we understand good theology. Hey, we just got y'all a subscription to Right Now Media. It'll really help. There's some good stuff on there, right? We develop this understanding of who God is. So we're ready for the crisis. So we're ready for the crisis. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. That's a figure of speech, basically meaning it was as hot as it could get. Understand, daring to be different means we're willing to suffer. Daring to be different means we're willing to suffer. Now, to be clear, some of us say we're suffering for Jesus when really we're suffering for being a jerk. Those are not the same. <laughs> but daring to be different means we're willing to suffer. And I want to tell you this, like, hey, I'll, like if you give me the choice, like, hey, Brian, would you like something comfortable or uncomfortable? i will be like, hey, comfort for 1,000, please, right? But, but there is something better than comfort, and that is knowing the God who is with us in our suffering. That there is something better than comfort. And that is knowing the God who is with us in our suffering. Right? Jesus said we'll have trouble in this world. And there are times, like I, don't, like, I think it's pretty doubtful that any of us are going to get thrown into a fiery furnace. But you might suffer for your faith. You might. You might get mocked for it. You might get denied a temporary earthly pleasure. The, the degree of your suffering may indeed be tremendous. The degree of my suffering may be tremendous. And there's nothing in our faith that asks us to deny that or pretend like it's not happening. But I'll say it again. There is something better than comfort, and that is knowing the God who is with us in our suffering. Verse 20. And he ordered some mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. Hey, there's another list. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The furnace is so hot that the dudes who went to throw them in get burned alive. I don't have a joke for that. Wow. And these three men, verse 23, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king, which just, that had to be a funny scene, right? Like, king, really? You miscounted the people we threw? Yes, it was three people, right? Verse 25, he answered and said, but I see four men, hmm, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Hello, come on somebody. They are thrown into the fire that's so hot it burns up the dudes that threw them in. But when Nebuchadnezzar looks in, what does he see? Four men, unbound, unhurt, walking in the midst of the fire, makes me think of Isaiah chapter 43, verse two. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Oh man, what a dramatic fulfillment of that promise that was. And can we just... Can you imagine what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must have been thinking as this is going on? Like they're ready to die for their, fa- like it's over. Like fiery furnace, they are going to die. They get in the furnace and all of a sudden, they are not dead. And they're walking around and they're breathing in and exhaling and feeling good about it. And there's another dude with them. Like. I just, this is just, my mind is weird, this is where it goes. I just wonder if they made eye contact with each other at all. Like, wait, no, I'm good, you get like, what's happening? (laughs) And who's that guy? (laughs) It's crazy stuff, man, it's crazy stuff. But that raises a good question. Who is this fourth being? For Nebuchadnezzar to call him a son of the gods meant that he recognized him as some sort of divine being. And some say that this was what is called a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ before his birth. And that is certainly possible, that indeed it was Jesus with them in that fire. Remember, this is just important theological thing to keep in mind. The Bible teaches, Colossians chapter one, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He has been ruling and reigning in heaven from eternity past. He did not just come into being in in, in Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago. So Jesus has been ruling and reigning through all of history. It very well could have been him who met them in the fire. It's also possible it was an angel of the Lord, a divine being who represented God's presence. But either way, and pretty much every commentary I read this week said, yeah, it's probably one or the other, and different people had their theories. But either way, here's what we know. Maybe it was Jesus, maybe it was an angel, but God was with them in that fire. God was with them in that fire. He was present in the fire, and daring to be different means knowing God is with us in the fire. Knowing God is with us in the fire. Now now listen to me, We, we do not have a blanket promise that we will never suffer harm. We just don't. I'd love to get up here and say, you know, you're gonna overcome everything and nothing's ever gonna go bad for it. Like, I'd love to say all that. The problem is it's not true. We don't have that promise. What we do have is the promise that we will never suffer alone. That we will never suffer alone. The same God who sent his son into the world to die on the cross for our sins, the same God who met those men in the fire, he meets us in the fire too. And you know what he does? And some of you, like, I'm in relationship with you, and we've walked through different things together. Sometimes he meets us in the fire, and he pulls us out. Yes. And it's amazing. Sometimes he just sits there with us. And we walk through a season of suffering. But we don't suffer alone, because our God is with us every step of the way. He doesn't just observe us from afar. He comes and enters into the fires of our life with us. I don't know what fire you're facing. I hope that you know because of Jesus you do not have to face it alone. You do not have to face it alone. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Not something, I think he expected to be shouting at the people he threw in the fire. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. No, it did not, because guess what? When the power of God is upon you, it is greater than any earthly power. Somebody say amen the hair on their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. They get out of the furnace. <laughs> and like, you know how if you get too close to the campfire and you're, you know, like not even that's going on here, right? Their hair is good. They're smelling good. They're breathing good. Like, it's like they weren't even in the fire. And and. and, and and if there was any doubt at all that this was a miracle of God, it is laid to rest right there. And, and I, just, I want to point this out. I want to point this out. And I'll credit Pastor Matt with this insight, although he says he read it somewhere. So as Pastor Matt said, God didn't save them from the fire. He saved them through the fire. Yeah. Like, that's powerful, isn't it? See, sometimes when we're at our end, that's where God meets us in the most powerful ways. I just said, he either pulls us from the fire or sometimes he sits with us in it. Either way, we can trust him. Whether he's giving us tickets or not, he is holy and good and powerful and sovereign and worthy of our trust. And understand this, why can we trust God? Is it because every situation works out the way that we want it to? No. It's because he sent his son to die on the cross in our place for our sin. And because he rose from the dead so that we can know our greatest enemies are eternally and forever defeated. So whatever fires we can walk through, they are significant, they are painful. I've talked to too many people who have church hurt that comes from people in church trying to gloss over pain, like, oh, it's not that big a deal. No, it's a big deal, but it's temporary. But it's temporary. The cross tells us it's temporary. Let's finish this out, verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. I'm not really sure what Nebuchadnezzar's, like, why his first thing was, like, graphic violence. Like, he's a weird dude. But notice the stark difference between this decree and the decree at the start of the chapter, right? Verse 30. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of of Babylon, they're raised up to greater authority. And then just look, just three verses and then we're done. Look at what it says, the king writes in the very next chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. That sounds like David right there, right? And this is a pagan king now. We've already seen that Nebuchadnezzar was kind of an odd dude. And I'd love to tell you, man, like, he really, like, God captured his heart, and he had this amazing future where he just glorified God in all of these different things, and it's incredible. Come back next week, and you will learn that pretty much the exact opposite of that is what happened. (laughs) Because here's the deal. At the end of the day, and just to make this real, real brief and simple, the king had a moment most powerful person in the world where he came and, came and realized there's someone whose power he cannot touch. And he was amazed by that for a moment. But at the end of the day, and this is, he's a complicated character, and this is a bit of an oversimplification. At the end of the day, he was just about the tickets. He wanted power, he wanted domination, he wanted authority, all of those things. He went along with the world's core values, chasing tickets, his tickets of choice, and it was his undoing, but God's values are different. And daring to be different means recognizing we're called to a different kind of life, a life where we don't chase blessings, we chase God himself. Again, God's blessings are beautiful. I do not wanna spend my life chasing his blessings. I want to chase him. It's a life where tickets or not, we're with him till the end. It's a but if not kind of life where we pray big prayers and believe that God will do powerful things and then we trust him with the outcome to say that no matter what, it is not our circumstances that defines God's goodness, it is the cross that defines God's goodness and we rest in that. God's gracious invitation to us, no guilt, no obligation, invitation is into that kind of life. The only question is, is will we take it? So I'm gonna close this in prayer and then a couple of us will be up front and and we'd love to be able to pray for you if there's anything you've got going on. If you're you're sitting here going, man, I think, I think I'm chasing tickets and I don't wanna do that anymore. Like we'd love to be able to pray for you with that. I know we walked through some heavy stuff tonight. So if that provokes something in you and you wanna, we'd love to pray for you for that. So come up and and see us, we'd sure love to pray for you. But let me just pray a, a closing prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you that you are eminently worthy of a but if not kind of faith where we can trust in your power, we can celebrate your victory, we can marvel at your wondrous works in our midst. I think about the incredible things you do here week in and week out. I think about salvations, I think about healings, I think about lives transformed, I think about the slow and steady work of spiritual maturity. God, you do good things in our midst and we trust you and we, we, we're so grateful for it. We wanna thank you for your blessings while at the same time saying, we love your blessings, but what we really love is you. So would you help us to be a people who chase you more than we chase blessing? God, we, we, I started off this prayer by saying you are worthy of that and so much more. So we thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that you are a God who does not sit idly by when we're in the fire. You don't just shout out advice. You get in the fire with us. And God, for those of us who are walking through fire today, may we know your presence in profound and powerful ways. God, we love you. Would you continue to form us as people who live out your core values in front of a watching world that desperately needs to know of your love. And may you do all of it for your glory and our joy. We love you. And we pray all these things in the powerful, strong, trustworthy name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend.